Well, you can uh, open your Bibles to the book of Jude. We'll look there in just a second. Um, it's good to see you back this evening. Uh, the uh, summer is quickly wrapping up, coming to an end. I know you don't want to hear that, uh, but a sure sign of that is many of our college young people headed back to school. Some have already gone back, um, whether local or out of state. And uh, some are leaving even this week, uh, some of them venturing in on their first year. So uh, we have some here tonight. This is their last service, and the last you'll be able to uh, say goodbye to them. So um, I'll just embarrass them. So uh, A.J., Judge, will be leaving. This is your last service, right, A.J.? Okay. So uh, you'll, you'll want to give him a big hug, <clears throat> all right, and uh, wish him well. Uh, Enzo Pelleggi, where'd Enzo go? Is he around here somewhere? What's that? He's ushering. Look at that. The very last night, and he's ushering all the way to the end. So good for him. You have to track him down and uh, wish him well as he heads off to his first year of college. And then uh, Catherine, her last service is with us here this evening. Uh, so Lord willing, we'll see them all in a, a few months, but um, this will be the last time they're with us. Again, it's a sign of things. Uh, the summer's ending, and so you want to make a note of that. Uh, this is also a very special evening uh, that was brought to my attention. Um, 63 years ago today, a very significant event occurred, and uh, that was uh, the, the marriage of John and Letitia Clater, 63 years ago today. And uh, yeah. Absolutely. <clears throat> Mr. Clater knew I'd embarrass him, so he didn't show up tonight. <laughs> so uh, actually, Mrs. Clater said she was afraid he might get married again. So, um, but uh, no, he's not feeling strong tonight. Um, but uh, thank the Lord for that. 63 years, that's uh, commendable. And so uh, we thank the Lord for them, their faithfulness to the Lord, their faithfulness to one another. And that's something to be commended. All right, well, I'm going to do my best to make good on a promise I made this morning in uh, answering some questions about this uh, text that we had before us this morning in uh, the book of Jude in verses 14 and 15. And so tonight we'll be, uh, you know, I look at these times together, you think of, of a sermon as something filled with uh, exhortation, and certainly uh, we want that to be the case, but, but sometimes I think you just have to handle objection. And you have to deal with kind of an apologetic. Um, you might come across this, that somebody might mention this to you about this reference in Jude. And what about these other books that uh, some say should be in the Bible, some say shouldn't? Um, how do we handle these things? So my goal tonight is kind of to equip us uh, to be able to at least be familiar with some of the things that, that we read of in the Bible with regard to our topic this evening. So you'll notice Jude 14 and 15, I have it for you on the screen, but we looked at this this morning where Jude writes and he says, it was about these, about these teachers that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
And this reference that Jude makes to Enoch, this seventh from Adam, raises a number of questions. The questions are these. One, where did Jude get this quote? There's no cross-reference in your Bible. You can't go back and read in the book of Genesis that this is something that, that Enoch had said. He's not referencing any Old Testament passage. Um, what is Jude's purpose in using this quote, uh, wherever his source is, wherever he got it from? And where he got this quote from, does that mean that, that there are other things out there that maybe aren't in the Bible but are Scripture? And is he quoting something that should be Scripture? And maybe it should be an additional book in our Bible. And so these are, these are questions that just come about because it appears that Jude really is quoting another source. And where did he get this from? And so when we talk about discussions like this, and when we talk about books in the Bible, the 66 books in your Bible, what we're talking about is something that's often referred to as the biblical canon. All right? Uh, when you think of canon, what do you think of? Yeah, you, you think of like, Revolutionary War, and uh, that canon. We'll, we'll try to get that from your mind. The canon has to deal with this question. Where or in what books has God really spoken? What, what biblical books are authoritative? Why do we have 66 books? Why not 67? How did those 66 get in there? And this is, a, this is a topic that people refer to as canonization. Why do we call it canonization or the canon? Well, the term canon means, literally means reed. Think of a reed like a long stick. And it came to signify a measuring stick. The canon is the measurement of something. It's the authoritative measurement of something. So in olden days, they didn't have tape measures. You didn't pull out your DeWalt and run it from wall to wall. You had a reed that was a certain measure, usually a cubit, and you would take that reed and you would plop it down, and that was its measurement, okay? And so canon came to this idea, or reed, it was the instrument by which things are measured or judged, so when we talk about the biblical canon, we're talking about the body of writing that God has given to rule the church. What writings are authoritative that you must measure your life by? That's what we're talking about. Are there other writings besides the Bible that, that I'm accountable for? that my life will be measured by those things. And this is the idea of canonization and what the church has, has done to try to discern what is the rule, what books are inspired by God and therefore authoritative. You see, by inspiration, God identifies human words as his own. This is how the Bible comes to us, right? It's, it's revelation from God. We wouldn't know these things had God not made them known to us. He used revelation in the process of inspiration. It's biblical writers who now under the influence of God write down God's words as it were in books. Canonization is the next step then that says, well, what books? What books were actually written this way under inspiration that we should hold as authoritative? And so 
When we talk about canon, we're talking about these things. I hope you can see that. It's very small. I'm sorry. Uh, the canon means read. It came to signify a measuring stick. The biblical canon is the body of writing that God has given to rule the church. That comes from a man named John Frame. I think that's the best way to summarize that. And our question is, how do we know what writings God has given to the church? In other words, whatever Jude's quoting, should that be a part of the church? Should that be something that rules the church? Okay. So since there's no inspired table of contents in the Bible, how do we know what the Bible is and what it isn't? This is the question of canonization. And this is a difficult question. Do you know why? Well, because there were other writings that Jewish people wrote, and there are actually other writings that even inspired Jewish writers wrote that aren't in the Bible. Let me give you an example. We have some ancient Jewish writings that were not preserved. We don't have them today, but we know that they were written and recorded by ancient Jewish people that were in Israel. For instance, look at Numbers 21. The book of Numbers 21. <clears throat> and look at verse 14. You have the writer of Numbers. Who's that? Moses, okay. And look at what Moses says in verse 14. Numbers 21, 14, therefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, and then he gives this quote. Now, how many of you have ever read that book? How many of you would like to read that book? That sounds kind of like a thriller to me, right? The book of the wars of the Lord. It's an ancient Jewish writing that Moses is referring to, but we don't have a copy of it. Well, what happened to it? Is that in the Bible? Moses refers to it. How about this one? Look at Joshua 10. Joshua 10, and look at verse 13. Here's the end of this quote. The sun stood still, the moon had stopped until the noon that took vengeance on their enemies. Look at the last part of the verse. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven, and they did not hurry to set for a whole day. How many of you have ever read that book? Okay, none, because... We don't have it. In fact, it's referenced again in 2 Samuel 1.18, the book of Jasher. And these aren't the only ones. 1 Chronicles 29.29 talks about the chronicles of Samuel and the chronicles of Nathan and the chronicles of Gad. It's listing other references, and it's, it's, it's indicating that you can read these yourself in the current day. 1 Chronicles 12.15 talks about the chronicles of Shemaiah and Edo the seer. But we don't have any of these works today. And so the point I'm making with this is just the 39 books that you have in your Old Testament aren't the only books that ancient Jewish people wrote. Therefore, we got to understand that 
just because a Jewish person associated with ancient Israel wrote a book, even a historical record of, of maybe something that God had did among the nation, doesn't mean it was inspired. And it doesn't mean it should be part of the canon, the 39 books of the Old Testament. And that's going to be our focus tonight is on the Old Testament because that's what we're dealing with Jude's quotation of this particular book, all right? So there were other ancient writings that the Jews, uh, Jewish people had written that were not preserved in any form for us today. However, there are some ancient Jewish writings that have been preserved, yet they're not to be found in your Bible, okay? What are these? They actually fall into two sets or two categories, one of them we call the Apocrypha. How many of you have heard of that? Yeah, probably all of you. The Apocrypha. What is the Apocrypha? Well, if, if you have a Roman Catholic Bible, or if you were raised in that tradition with the Roman Catholic Bible, you're very familiar with that because there are 14 books that are added between the Old and New Testament in that Bible. And this is called the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha also includes extended portions of Daniel. We have 12 chapters of Daniel in our Bible, and the Apocrypha, Daniel has 13 chapters. And that 13th chapter is actually listed as Bell and the Dragon. How would you like to read that? So you have these 14 books in the Apocrypha. What do we know about it? There are 14 books, including the added portion of Daniel. They are instructional, some of them giving instructions. Some are legendary, clearly legendary. Some are prophetic, like the books of 2nd Esdras, and Tobit, and Judas. Some are historical, like Maccabees, that talks about what happened in the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament. Well, what about these books? Um... As I mentioned, they're included in the Roman Catholic Bible, and they were accepted as Scripture in 1546 at the Council of Trent. And so Roman Catholicism since that time has said these are Scripture, and that's why they're included in their Bible. However, none of these apocryphal books have ever been accepted by the Jewish people as on the same par with the 39 books of our Old Testament. No Jewish person has ever claimed that. In fact, I think you have hints within the apocryphal books themselves that they're not on the same level as the Old Testament prophets or what we read in the Old Testament. Let me show you this. Um, here's an example from our point is none claim inspiration nor were accepted by the Jews as such. Here's, here's something from the book of 1 Maccabees. There's the reference for you. And just for a little context, this is talking about when when the temple altar was destroyed by Gentile people and it was defiled because the Gentiles came and destroyed it, uh, this is the first part. The people didn't know what to do with the stones of that temple altar, which had been defiled by the Gentiles. So they, and here's the quote from 1 Maccabees, they stored the stones in a convenient place on the temple hill until a prophet should come to tell what to do with them. Now, what do you make of that? What's that saying? Think about it a little bit, okay? 
It's saying we don't know what to do in this situation because we don't have a prophet. The prophets haven't spoken. They've quit speaking. And so we're waiting for another prophet. And when they come, they'll tell us what we should do. Okay? You get a better sense, I think, of that in this next reference. In 923, it says this. At the death of Judas Maccabeus, there was great distress in Israel, such as had not been since the time that prophets ceased to appear among them. Then again, in 1441, it says, the Jews and their priests have resolved that Simon should be their leader and high priest forever until a trustworthy, what? Prophet should arise. You can see within the book of Maccabees itself, it's saying we don't have a prophet. We don't have a word from God. That somehow has ceased, and they're waiting for this. They're expecting more, but this would have been at the end of the Old Testament after the book of Malachi. And so even within the Apocrypha itself, and this is why the Jewish people had said that this is not on the same par as the 39 books of the Old Testament, okay? To add to that, how do we know the Apocrypha is not part of the Bible or shouldn't be included in sacred text? It's never quoted in the New Testament. Um, Any of these 14 books, any of the extended portions of Daniel, no New Testament writer ever quotes from those. And in fact, some of the apocryphal works, uh, let me get back to my list here, none of the apocrypha is quoted in the New Testament, and some apocryphal works actually contradict the New Testament. Do you know where Roman Catholicism gets the doctrine of purgatory from? You know what purgatory is? It's the purging. It's, it's if I die and I've, I've committed a venial sin that hasn't been forgiven, then I go to purgatory where that, that is purged out, as it were, so I can then go to heaven. It's kind of this holding place until that happens. That's in the Apocrypha. That's where that doctrine comes from. And, and that stands in direct contrast to what the New Testament teaches. And so either you believe the Apocrypha or you believe the rest of the New Testament. But you can't believe both is inspired Scripture or you have a contradiction. We read in the Apocrypha things like praying for the dead or giving alms to obtain salvation. If those things are true, as recorded by the Apocrypha, then we have certain books in the New Testament that are definitely false. And therefore, you have to choose. The Apocrypha was never received by Orthodox believers in the Christian church. And for that reason, it was considered as valuable. It was considered historical in some regards. It was considered traditional among the Jewish people. But it never achieved the same status as our 39 books of the Old Testament. Martin Luther, in his Bible translation of 1534... He extracted the apocryphal books from their usual place between the Testaments and put them at the end. Because again, in his mind, it was, they're important, you can read them, it tells you something about Jewish culture and history, but they're like the appendix. Let's remember what the Bible is and put them in their proper place, which is appendix at the end. It was after that that many Protestant Bibles omitted them completely. And um, thus, the Bible that you buy today typically does not have the Apocrypha within it, all right? 
So that's, that's the Apocrypha, right? And I just wanted to cover that because it hits on this area of canonization. So we have ancient Jewish writings that are preserved. One is called the Apocrypha, those 14 books. The other is the one I brought up this morning, the Pseudepigrapha. And I explained that this morning, that uh, these are books that were typically written between 200 B.C. and 100 A.D. That's a period of 300 years that spans the time of Christ. It was common for Jewish people in those times when they wrote to assume a name of a popular biblical figure and attach it to their writing to give it credence. Thus, you have the book of Enoch, as I mentioned today. You have the testimony of Moses. You have the martyrdom of Isaiah. You have the Psalm of Solomon. You have uh, the apocalypse of Baruch. And these are all pseudepigraphal writings. It means false writing. In other words, Moses didn't really write that thing, even though it says it's his testimony, right? Enoch didn't really write that thing, even though it's got his name on the book. We wouldn't say that about the book of Isaiah. Isaiah wrote that. But this is how Jewish people oftentimes would communicate things. And so we have, we have two of these, what we call pseudepigraphal writings that come up in the book of Jude. One I'd mentioned before, it's called the Assumption of Moses, sometimes referred to as the Testimony of Moses. Now, Jude doesn't actually quote from that, but remember this story back in Jude in verse 6, and it talks about, uh, I'm sorry, verse um, 9, and it talks about uh, Michael the archangel and Satan contending over the body of Moses. Remember that? And I said, you remember reading that in your Bible? And at that point, it was Sunday morning, and you were all glossed over. And, you know, and, uh, and somebody was like, oh, maybe I did. I just don't remember. Uh, no, it's not in your Bible anywhere, except for right here in Jude. And, and so that really comes from that testimony of Moses, or the assumption of Moses. That story is recorded there. And of course, you have this quote in Jude 14 from the book of Enoch, and you have it being alluded to, I believe, in verse 6 when it talks about the angels who didn't stay within their proper authority. Remember that whole story about Genesis 6 and how that's recorded in the book of Enoch? And so let's talk about the book of Enoch in particular, right? This is not written by Enoch, this book that Jude is quoting from. As I said, it was written sometime between 200 B.C. and 100 A.D. Enoch was long gone by then. It wasn't written by him. Um, yet it, it seems to be quoting from this work, Jude does. Um, it predates Jude because you actually find portions of it in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, A pseudepigraphal work in the Dead Sea Scrolls. All right. Our question is this, why is Jude quoting this? Where did he get it? What's his purpose? Um, sorry, I meant to show you this. The Pseudepigrapha. Here, here's a list of these books, right? Here's the one we're dealing with, the Book of Enoch, okay? Um, here's our question. Why does Jude quote First Enoch? Should First Enoch be in the canon? And what is Jude's purpose in quoting this extra-biblical source, all right? What I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to give you 
two solutions to this problem. And I'm going to tell you, pick one. Because I think they're both valid. I might have a, a, a leaning toward one or the other. I'm not going to let you know that. But, but I think people have done some hard thinking on this, and they're both valid. Okay? The first is this. What is Jude doing with this? And the first, I think, is this. Hopefully I have this up here is that Jude is making use of truth outside the Bible to make his argument. In other words, Jude, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says Enoch said this. Whether he's reading it in Enoch or he knows it from oral tradition, the Holy Spirit is saying this is true. He's bringing it to Jude's mind, and Jude is writing it down, and it's exactly what happened. This is what Enoch said. Okay. You say, well, that seems strange. Why would he quote a source outside the Bible for that? Well, this is not unusual. Look at Titus, the book of Titus. In chapter 1. And Paul, the author here, he's writing to Titus, who is on Crete, this little island. Titus is the pastor there. Paul is coaching him, as it were, about establishing this church. Titus chapter 1, verse 10, Paul writes to Titus and says, There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting the whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Do you know what that's from? That's from a word called the Epimenides of Crete. And Paul is actually quoting not another biblical figure, but just a, a, a Cretan prophet, a guy that says he's a prophet, not even necessarily a biblical prophet. And Paul reaches into that word and says, look, these are the kind of people you're dealing with, Titus. Their own prophet says this about them. Now, is it true? Yes, it's true. And it's truth outside the Bible not inside the Bible, outside the Bible that Paul is reaching and the, the Holy Spirit's making use of to put into this context to instruct something about what is going on there in Crete. All right? That's not the only thing. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look at verse 8. Um, well, let's get some context here. <clears throat> Look at verse 6, 2 Timothy 3, verse 6. From among them, Paul's writing to Timothy, are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and lead them astray by various passions, always learning, never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. So these men also oppose the truth, Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Now, 
Who opposed Moses? Two guys named here, Janus and Jambres. Remember reading about them? Do you? Look at Exodus chapter 7. Verse 10, Exodus 7, 10, So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Verse 11, Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and the magicians of Egypt, and they did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. And you know the rest of the story. What's missing there? The names. We don't have those names. Paul, when he writes to Timothy, he names them just like Timothy would know this and anybody else to whom he's writing. Where do they get those names? Well, that comes from an extra-biblical source. It's nowhere in our Bible, but Paul is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, referencing this extra-biblical source, and that's truth. Were those guys' names actually Janus and Jambres? Yes. And the Holy Spirit is using Paul with that truth outside the Bible. He's picking up on it, and he's writing it down in the whole inscripturation process. Here's one more. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, look at verse 32. We'll just jump right into this context. Paul says, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Verse 33, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Now, you've probably said that verse to your kids, verse 33, right? Don't you know that bad company corrupts good morals? Be careful of your friends. And you're quoting the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians 15. Well, guess what? Paul is quoting from Meander's comedy. Common work during that day. And he is picking up on that. Now, let me ask you, is that true? Is it true that bad company corrupts good morals? Yes, okay? This is truth, we would say, before Paul wrote it, outside the Bible, right? This, this quote, as is being said, and, and here's somebody, because of common grace and general knowledge, they understand that to be the way God's world works, and Paul is picking up on that, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's using it, and it's being written down. Right? So, when we go back to the book of Jude, and Jude is quoting from this pseudepigraphal work, the book of Enoch, it's absolutely true what is said there, and, they, and people will come to the conclusion and say, Jude is simply making use of truth outside the Bible to make his argument. This is something that Paul did repeatedly, 
And it doesn't mean that, that the thing he's quoting should be Scripture any more than those Cretan prophets should be considered Scripture. It's just truth that happened to be in there that's being made use of by the Holy Spirit as Paul is penning the Scripture. Make sense? Okay. That's one solution. Here is uh, the second solution, and we'll be done. The second solution would look this way, that what Jude is actually doing is he's using his opponent's sources against them. That the people that Jude is actually referring to, these certain ones in the church that are creating all the trouble, that they had an affinity for these books, these pseudepigraphal writings, and maybe picked up some of their bad theology and practice from some of these writings. And they're trumpeting these things as the things that are reliable scripture. And what Judah's doing is actually pulling out of those things that they're so uh, enamored with and, and kind of using it against them and saying, these things that you're so enamored with, the testimony of Moses and Enoch, look at what it says in there about people like you and bringing that into play. And again, this is not unlike what Paul has done. Look at Acts 17. The book of Acts in the 17th chapter. Acts 17, verse 22, says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For, quote, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And that last line, we are indeed his offspring, is a quote from a poem called Phenomena. And what Paul is doing is he's speaking to these people at Athens and he is reaching into their understanding of their own culture and the things that they would be well familiar with, this work phenomena. And Paul says, you even read it when you read that thing. We all come from one source. We've all come from God. And so that, in my understanding, is not unlike what... 
Jude could be doing when he's actually taking these works that these false teachers are so enamored with and he's pulling out of them and he's saying, ah, you like the rest of it, but you missed this. Remember what Enoch said about all ungodliness and how it will be judged? And have you forgotten the story about those angels that actually left their state and defied the authority of God? And so that's an option. Nevertheless, when Jude quotes even extra-biblical sources or even any biblical writer quotes extra-biblical sources, it doesn't mean those sources from which they quote are inspired. It simply means that they are true and they are being used in a way to address the current audience under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? I hope that's clear. Let me wrap it up with this. So why do we have these 39 books? How do they decide on these? Let me just give you a few quick things here. Number one, those 39 books in your Old Testament we're dealing with, this would be true of most of the New Testament as well, those books actually claim to be God's Word. How do they do so? We, we read our Bible so much we just gloss over this. How many times do you read in your Bible, and the Lord said? You'll read it over 3,000 times in your Old Testament. And what's it saying? The Lord said this. I mean, either it's lying or those are God's words. And so those 39 books that the Jewish people accepted as from God, they say they carry this kind of authority. The Lord is speaking. This is his recorded revelation. Those 39 books contain fulfilled prophecies. The Jewish people examine that, that they prophesy of the rise and fall of kingdoms and nations and specific things that would take place. And, and if anything in those books that said would happen doesn't come to pass, then they don't meet the bar and they would be taken away. But those books contain fulfilled prophecies. Probably the strongest argument is the fact that those 39 books are the books that are accepted by our Lord and his apostles. When they quote and they say things like, the scripture says, you'll find it in one of those 39 books. The book of Matthew is notorious for this. Matthew says, this happened that the scripture would be fulfilled. And he uses that time and time again. And this happened. Jesus was born of a virgin that the scripture would be fulfilled. He was taken to Egypt that the scripture would be fulfilled. And he goes back and he pulls out and he quotes from those 39 books. And he's saying, this is our understanding as a nation. Those are authoritative works. It's being fulfilled now in the time of Jesus. And then there are things like this. We'll, we'll finish with this. Look at Luke 24. The Gospel of Luke. There toward the end, the 24th chapter. And look at verse 44. This is after the resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples. Luke 24, 44, then he, that is Jesus, said to them, these disciples, 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, what's that? How would you define that, the law of Moses? What is it? Pentateuch, the first five books of your Bible. The law of Moses. Jesus said, everything that was written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets. How would you define that? Okay, there's 12 minor prophets. You've got the major prophets. Daniel's one, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Okay, what Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations. This prophetic corpus, right? And he says, the Psalms. And you might think just particular of those 150 musical writings that we have in the Psalter. And I don't mean to get too technical, but what's going on here is something called synecdoche. Remember that from English class? It's, it's using part of something to represent the whole. Okay, So sometimes instead of just talking about the whole, I'll say part of something. But by my referencing the part of it, it's actually speaking for the whole. All right? And the Psalms were a part of what the Jews classified thirdly as the writings, which would include all the wisdom literature. It would include much of the historical books. And so when Jesus says, all this was going to be fulfilled, and he lists these three parts, the law, the prophets, and the writings, those were the 39 books that the Jewish people held in their day and said, these are the scripture. And I want to remind you that for 200 years, you had these pseudepigraphal writings circling around, and the Jews never considered them on the same level as those 39 books. In fact, Jesus himself said, here's where you'll read about me. The law, the prophets, the writings. Okay? And here's the thing about that, all right? Think about what you read in those 39 books. You're a Jewish person. You have a proud heritage. What are you going to read in those 39 books? Is it all flattering? I mean, you want to record your history and your heritage. And when we do that and we sit down and we write a book... We leave out all the bad stuff and we write all the good stuff, right? I was talking to my, my aunt, my mom's sister, years ago, her older sister. And she was doing some, some history search about our family. And I forget, she came up, uh, she found out something about how, how part of our family moved to Colorado was uh, one guy was either a horse thief or he was immoral and he like was fleeing from the, the, the law or something. Remember that, mom? And... and and I'm like, yeah, we'll leave that out of the, of the family history, right? Let's just kind of gloss over that. Those are things we don't really want to put in there. Well, if, if you're writing and you're concerned to meticulously preserve the history of your people and, and the work of God among your people, you might be tempted to leave some of those bad things out. But what do you read in those 39 books? I mean, have you read the book of Judges? And to me, it's like that in itself demonstrates that there's something supernatural about those books that even those people themselves recognize that these are the words of God. And, and, and these are the ones that we're, 
we're, we're willing to be judged by the canon, and they're ones that we're willing to die for. In fact, uh, Alexander McLaren said it best this way. Uh, here's the point. The 39 books of the Old Testament claim to be God's word, and they are the books that the Jewish people have accepted as divinely inspired. Here's what Alexander McLaren said about this. It is strange that the Jewish race should have so jealously preserved books which certainly do not flatter their national pride, but which put a mortifying explanation on their national disasters and which paint them and their fathers in dark colors, which proclaim truths that they have never loved and breathe a spirit that they've never caught. It is stranger still that they have so stiffly and laboriously labored at the intellectual activity of guarding the letter of the word. And if you realize how they preserved those words, it was laborious and painful, but they did so dutifully. He says, it's, it's like coral insects painfully building up the walls around some fair island of the southern sea. That kind of small little detail that ultimately builds and builds into something. And McLaren saying the Jews were so carefully meticulous about those 39 books, it demonstrated their reverence and understanding about what they were. And that's why they were accepted into the canon. All right, so, so what about Jude? Well, take your pick. Is Jude taking truth outside the Bible like other New Testament writers do and saying this is true and therefore under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit he's recording it? Or maybe he's just addressing his opponents by the very material that they're using to address him and he's saying, well, let's talk about this book of Enoch that you're so enamored with and here's what else it says that you've overlooked. Either way, what is said is true. I think either of those would make a good point. All right? Well, if you have questions about that, all right, I don't want this to shake your faith. Maybe you've been introduced to things tonight you've never thought of. You had no idea that there were books written by Jewish people that aren't in your Bible. You're wondering, how did all this come together? Don't be shaken by that. I'd, I'd be glad to discuss this with you further and talk to you more about it and be all the help that I can. Um, but hopefully that helps you when, when you come across these things, especially in Jude, to understand them a little bit better. Okay? All right. Well, uh, I'm going to um, turn the service over now to uh, Pastor Andrew. He's going to come because we have some folks to join the church tonight. And uh, since I have... Uh, a family member as one of them. We're going to let Pastor Andrew do this tonight. So uh, he's going to handle uh, the membership. We've got some folks that have desired to join our congregation, and we're delighted about that and uh, eager to see that happen. And so uh, Pastor Andrew's going to come and introduce them for us, have them share their testimony, and then we'll be dismissed tonight.